0: The Dow Jones average ended Friday up 119 points, 24,580 was the close. The reason that the gain was significant is that it allowed the Dow to avoid the dubious distinction of falling for nine consecutive days. I mean, we fell eight days in a row uh, leading up to uh, yesterday, and that is pretty rare. It's happened 43 times in the history of the Dow, which goes back to 1896. But as rare as an eight-day decline is, a nine-day decline is significantly rarer. The last time we had one of those, Jimmy Carter was the president. It was 40 years ago. And, you know, I have been comparing Donald Trump to Jimmy Carter. And so it may be appropriate that we have a similar type of decline in the stock market on Trump's watch than we had on Carter's, and obviously Trump's term is not over yet, so it's still possible we can have a nine-day decline. You know, by the way, if you're keeping score, the all-time record is 14 consecutive days down. That streak ended in 1941, and of course it coincided with the beginning of the Second World War, so obviously there was a lot to worry about leading on to the Second World War. And that's why the Dow was down 14 days in a row. I don't know if that record is going to be broken on Trump's watch. I mean, with all the inflation uh, that the Fed is able to create these days, I think it would be a tough record uh, to, to break. But nonetheless, well, well, we'll see what happens. But again, the the similarities that I see with Trump and Jimmy Carter are that Trump will do for the Democrats, and in particular, the left wing, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party. He will do for the socialists what Jimmy Carter did for the right wing of the Republican Party. The conservatives rode to power because of the problems that were blamed on Carter. Well, the socialists are going to rise to power in America based on the problems that are going to be blamed on Trump. Getting back, though, to the the Dow Jones. Oh, oh. While I'm on uh, the history of the Dow, I might as well mention, too, that another historic event was announced this week. General Electric is going to be kicked out of the Dow. General Electric is the last remaining original member of the Dow Jones. 1896, when the index was first started, uh, GE was there. And I think originally there were only 12 stocks, and eventually it was expanded. Obviously, now it's the Dow 30. Uh, but GE is the only surviving original member of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's now going to be replaced by Walgreens, right? another retailer, which shows you the deindustrialization of the American economy, the type of stock that goes out. But this also shows you how the index is really unreliable as a barometer of you know, how you would have done if you, you know, hey, if you just bought the Dow 100 years ago, because the companies are not the same it's hard to say what you would have when most of the companies that were in the Dow 100 years ago no longer exist. Now, some of them merged and they still exist in another form, but a lot of them just went out of business. You know, General Electric was a huge part of the 1990 tech bubble. I mean, that was one of the high flyers, and it still has not gotten back to its 2000 peak. In fact, it was one of the biggest losers in the 2008 financial crisis. I remember In the years leading up to the financial crisis, I used to refer to General Electric as a hedge fund masquerading as a company. So I've always thought that General Electric had a lot of problems. And in fact, year to date, it is the worst performing stock in the Dow. I think it's down about 25% this year. It was down about 50% last year. So the Dow Jones has a habit of kicking out the weaker stocks. So if a company is having trouble and going down, they just get rid of it, pretend it doesn't exist. And now they bring a brand new company in to replace it. And so to go back over the entire history of the Dow and say, hey, this is how well the Dow has performed, it's really disingenuous because there is so much reverse engineering of the Dow to make sure that they weed out all the weaker stocks and they keep finding stronger companies to replace them with. But anyway, let me get back to... Uh, uh, Friday's move where the Dow was able to rise. You know, the main reason that the Dow was able to go up was because oil prices were so strong and that lifted all of the uh, oil stocks and commodity stocks. We also had a weak dollar uh, that uh, helped some of the multinationals. That's probably why the uh, NASDAQ, Russell 2000, uh, those indexes finished the day uh, in the red But I don't think a surge in the price of oil is necessarily a good thing for the U.S. economy or the U.S. stock market. Oil was up $3 a barrel. Uh, We closed at $68.58. The high was $69.33. So a huge up day. It coincided with a production increase announced on Friday by OPEC. Now you might think, well, if they're going to produce more oil, why did the price of oil go up on an increase in supply? And that's buy the rumor, sell the fact, or in this case, sell the rumor, buy the fact. I think traders had sold oil on anticipation of today's announcement and they bought it back. That's how trading works. And we had a very strong day. Now, also, you can argue that the million barrel a day ad, when the traders actually looked at the mechanics of that, it really only amounts to maybe six or seven hundred thousand extra real production. I mean, maybe in theory, it's a million. But practically, uh, a lot of the countries just don't have the capacity to increase production because they're already producing as much as they can. So I think the traders actually realize this. And so maybe the cuts aren't as big as they thought. And that was another reason that the rally was so strong. But the chart to me for crude looks uh, incredibly bullish. I think we've been we're going higher. I've been saying since the beginning of the year that we would get to $80 a barrel or higher this year. I still think we're on track. You know, with uh, West Texas now 68.58, we did get as high as almost 73 before the most recent pullback, uh, but I think that high is going to be taken out relatively soon. But what's more significant is the euro price of oil, which hit a high for almost four years yesterday because the euro has fallen since the last time oil prices uh, hit that high and so from a European perspective, we're now at new highs uh, for oil prices. And as I've been saying on this podcast, this is a big problem for Eurozone inflation, which is already running at 1.9% the way they measure it. In Germany, year over year, it's 2.2%. But this increase in oil prices, I believe, is going to push Uh, the eurozone inflation above 2% very quickly. And the question is, how much longer will the ECB be able to pretend that they're going to keep interest rates at zero for another year in the face of all this rising inflation, when the so-called justification or rationalization for keeping interest rates so low for so long is to make sure inflation gets close to but not at 2%. Well, if we're already staring at 2% from above and looking below to see it, uh, how can the ECB justify it? Now, maybe they're going to try to dismiss it. Oh, it's only temporary because of the oil price rise. The oil price rise doesn't look temporary. To me, this looks like a trend that is just gaining traction. And so oil prices are going to keep on going up. And it's not the core rate that the ECB has to keep below 2%. It is the headline rate. But inflation, of course, is not just going to be a problem in the Eurozone. It is going to be a bigger problem in the United States. I think the difference is, while the Europeans are going to ultimately raise interest rates to fight their inflation, especially since there's going to be a lot of pressure from the Bundesbank uh, on the ECB to do that, the United States is just going to surrender. We're not even going to bother to battle inflation because there's no way we could win. And so inflation is going to be a bigger problem here in that it's going to get even more out of control uh, than it will in the Eurozone. But it is going to do damage worldwide. And it is amazing that you have such a massive inflationary threat looming on the horizon. And as far as the central banks are concerned, uh, it's, it's even the possibility of that isn't even something they can imagine, which I will get to in a little bit when I talk about the stress tests that the, uh, that the Federal Reserve recently uh, announced the result of with respect to the banks. But before I get to those stress tests, let me get a little, to a little bit more about uh, what's going to be impacting consumers in the United States. Because not only are American consumers going to be adversely affected by rising oil prices and rising prices in general, but you have two other things that are going to be particularly problematic uh, for consumers, and they are going to be tariffs, which I'm going to get to in a minute, and a Supreme Court ruling that came out earlier in the week on the internet sales tax. Now, prior to the Supreme Court ruling, if a company did not have a physical presence in a state, then it could sell merchandise into that state and not charge a sales tax. And this goes way before the internet. I mean, people uh, were selling by mail order. And I know a lot of people, you know, you would go if you're on vacation, you would buy something and you would just have the store mail it to your home address out of town. Because if you did that, you would avoid the tax. In fact, there's still a lot of people today that buy things uh, and have the stores You know, mail the empty box out of state to a friend's house uh, so they can illegally avoid uh, paying the sales tax. So, this is not something that was new for the internet. It is something that has always existed that you need a physical presence in a state uh, before you are required to uh, collect taxes. But with the boom in online purchases, a lot of people began buying things on the internet. One of the reasons was to avoid sales taxes because obviously people are looking for the best buys they can, especially when money is tight, you're living paycheck to paycheck. And so if you can buy something online and not have to pay sales tax, uh, more people are going to do that. Now, obviously, this is a big negative for the brick and mortar stores that have no choice but to charge the sales tax. And now when their competitors online don't have to charge it, that's one of the reasons that so many uh, stores have been shutting down because consumers have been taking advantage of the ability uh, to avoid sales taxes by by shopping online. Well, that lifeline is going to be gone. Now, with the Supreme Court, all of the states are going to be able to force all of the online retailers, whether or not they have any presence at all in their state, to charge sales taxes and remit those taxes to uh, to the states. Now, obviously, this is a big loss for the online retailers because, A, it's going to make their uh, what their retailing less attractive to their customers. But now they're going to have to go through the expense of collecting all these taxes and paying all these taxes. So that is going to impact their margins. So they're going to sell less stuff online uh, because now people have to pay sales tax. So maybe they'll just buy it locally. And if they do sell it, they're going to have the increased cost of compliance uh, with the tax laws in all 50 states, right? If you're, if you're an online retailer and you're in one state, but you've got customers in every state, you are collecting taxes for every single state. So this is going to really complicate life and obviously uh, hurt the profits of a lot of the online retailers. Big ones like Amazon. I mean, Amazon has already been charging sales tax all along, so it doesn't hurt Amazon as much, although there's a lot of stores that sell on Amazon Uh, that don't charge sales tax because they're partnered with Amazon and so obviously it's going to be more difficult for them but the smaller online retailers are going to suffer who are the winners obviously the brick and mortar guys because now they're going to get more sales because uh, customers who may have been shopping online to avoid the sales tax now that they can't avoid the sales tax maybe they'll they they won't shop online maybe they'll buy uh, from the brick and mortar retailer but The one obvious loser here is the customer. The consumer is a big loser. It's obvious to everybody except Donald Trump. And the reason I say this is because as soon as the Supreme Court announced this, Donald Trump sends out a tweet, a tweet, rather. He puts out a tweet and he says, This is great news for consumers, specifically, specifically included consumers. This is great news. This is a win for consumers. Now, by what definition does Donald Trump consider this a win? Consumers are going to have to pay more money for everything they buy. How is that winning? I mean, maybe maybe if that is how Trump defines winning, winning, getting to pay more, now we know why he thinks we can win a trade war, right? Because we can win a trade war because American consumers will end up paying more. Now, I don't know if that's the kind of winning Uh, that people who voted for Trump expected. Remember, when Trump was a candidate, he said that we were going to be winning so much, we were going to get tired of winning. Well, if this is winning, if paying more is a win, then I think people are going to get tired of winning a lot sooner than candidate Trump believed. And, you know, I don't really like to have to criticize Trump, but the problem is, Nobody else is for the right reasons. I mean, I I can't stand the left and their incessant and out of line and over the top and unwarranted criticism constantly of the president, right? It's completely wrong. All of this criticism is ideologically based and unfounded. Uh, And, you know, I think the Democrats and the left should be ashamed of themselves for the things that they are saying especially a lot of the references, you know, to Nazis and Germany and the Holocaust. I mean, all this stuff is so far out of line. But what bothers me more than the unwarranted and constant criticism from the Democrats is the complete lack of criticism from the Republicans. I mean, this is what is going to do more damage, is the fact that Trump is not getting criticized at all, that he is being blindly supported by the republicans when he talks about stuff like you know consumers winning uh from having to pay sales tax i mean it's definitely a win for the brick and mortar retailers and if you think the the playing field has been leveled and now this is more fair well then say that but level with the american consumer this means that your days of avoiding sales taxes are over this is a gigantic tax hike For American consumers. And this is going to undermine the economy. I mean, to the extent that people were going to benefit from the income tax cuts, well, now their income isn't going to go as far because now they're going to have sales tax hikes. But it's not just sales taxes, it's tariffs. You know, we just got um, yesterday, Donald Trump said that he's going to impose 20% tariffs on European automobiles imported in the United States. That's a 20% tax. If you want to buy a Mercedes or a BMW or if you want to buy a Volkswagen, right? It doesn't have to be an expensive German car. It could be an economy car, right? Well, now you're going to have to pay 20% more. Oh, another win, right? That's winning as far as the president's concerned. Pay more, ka another win. And then, of course, you know, the U.S. manufacturers, because now they're going to have less competition or Europeans are going to have the added cost of the tariffs. That will allow the American manufacturers to raise their prices. Oh, another win. We get to win again. And right? All of this: higher tariffs, higher sales taxes, higher oil prices, higher, you know, commodity prices in general. Inflation breaking out. All of this is going to be, uh, you know, weighing down the economy. You know, before I I even move forward to uh, the economic data and these stress tests, just to backtrack a little bit on my criticism of Trump because I did get some flack from my last podcast for all the talk about the space force and the aliens that come on, you know, Trump doesn't really believe that we're, you know, preparing to attack aliens that, you know, he is talking about a a space force for Earth Earth enemies, right? It's going to be part of our uh, normal defense to defend our nation from uh, other terrestrials, right? Uh, But If you actually think about it, that can't be why we need a space force. I mean, we don't need boots in space to utilize space as part of our national defense. If we're going to have um, missiles in space, if we're going to have lasers up in space that shoot down missiles or whatever, that's fine. That's launching satellites into space. That is not having actual troops... In outer space, when he's talking about a space force that is separate but equal to the air force, you're talking about a real force, you're talking about a complement of troops that are going to be in spaceships in outer space. They're obviously not needed for what would be a normal space part of U.S. national defense. You would only need something like that if you were engaging people in space. And who would we engage in space? Well, obviously, people invading us from other planets would be the only people that we might engage in space. We're not going to engage the North Koreans or the the Russians or the Chinese in spaceships doing battle like they're dogfighters. I mean, if we're in space, it might just be some missiles being launched to or from space. And that's it. I mean, Trump might as well have proposed Uh, that we we launched a federation of planets, right, that was separate but equal to the United Nations, right? It could spend as much money and achieve just as little, right? Because why do we need a federation of planets? We're obviously the only planet around. I mean, so we'd be a federation of one. I mean, maybe, you know, Trump is like, oh, let's plan in advance just in case, you know, you can never be too sure. Let's get the federation started. I mean, that's what the whole Space Force really seems to be about. It's about trying to prepare for a potential invasion that may be decades away, hundreds of years away, thousands of years away. But we have got real serious problems. That is the, the most ridiculous part about the president talking about launching a Space Force. Right? You're talking about Nero fiddling while Rome burns. We have real serious economic problems here. Now, the president isn't aware about them because he thinks everything is so great, right? Every tweet is about how great the economy is. And in fact, I think the Democrats even buy into how great the economy is. I mean, they, 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 they think it's great. They hope everything collapses, but they think it's great now. Nobody realizes just how bad the economy is, but they're about to find out. Now, the economic data that came out this week, I mean, all of it really points to stagflation if you look at the data look at the Philly Fed, dropped down to 19 it was the biggest drop in four years it's the lowest since the election uh, and look at the uh, manufacturing PMI these those numbers came out yesterday dropped to a seven month low it's the lowest since November 2017 but if you look at the actual numbers new orders uh, you know fell sharply but input costs rose to their highest levels since September. Uh, 2013. So you have rising input costs. You have falling orders. To me, this is all stagflation. This is so obviously uh, what is coming. It's um, even Alan Greenspan, as I pointed out. Alan Greenspan was on CNBC not too long ago. Maybe it was last week talking about stagflation. He can see it. But you know who can't see stagflation? Anyone at the Federal Reserve. Because the Federal Reserve announced the results of their stress tests, I think it was on Friday, either Thursday or Friday. And surprise, surprise, everybody passed, right? So the Federal Reserve designed tests to measure how the banks that they regulate would perform in adverse economic scenarios. And surprise, surprise, everybody passed the test. I mean, first of all, you know, if a teacher gives a test and everybody gets an A, then the test was too easy. Clearly, the Federal Reserve designed this test so that everybody would pass, which, of course, you know, is why the test means nothing. Right. I mean, because obviously they don't want to have to announce that the banking system is not sound. So they want to run these bogus stress tests so that they can create a false sense of confidence in the banking system. But I want to actually look at the stress test because you really can't tell anything unless you look at what they're assuming, right? What type of stress is the Federal Reserve assuming the economy is going to be under, right? So first of all, you know, you have their most likely scenario that they have, their base case. And their base case scenario, which is their actual forecast, is everything is great, right? The economy continues to grow, two, two and a half percent a year. I mean, a little bit more this year, but then it slows down. Inflation stays right at two percent. Interest rates stay about where they are. Unemployment goes a little bit lower than it is. Everything is great, right? Everything is rosy. Everything is perfect. Now, their adverse scenario goes as follows. The U.S. has a mild recession. And During that mild recession, the Federal Reserve is able to lower interest rates down to about zero again. The yield on the 10-year falls to about three-quarters of 1%. So 10-year yields go below 1%. Inflation falls. They don't say how low, but it falls below 2%. Unemployment rises and peaks at 7%. So This is their adverse scenario. Interest rates go back down to zero. I mean, that doesn't sound that horrible to have interest rates go back down to zero. Uh, Inflation goes down. I mean, what's so horrible about lower inflation? You know, this is not that bad, if you think about it. But then you got to look at their extreme, right? Their severely adverse scenario. In that scenario... We have a bigger recession, and according to the Federal Reserve, there is a global aversion to buying long-term sovereign debt, like government bonds. So because of that aversion, the yield on the 10-year doesn't fall to three-quarters of 1% the way it does under the adverse scenario. It stays where it is, around 3%, right? So it just doesn't fall. And so because interest rates don't fall, then there is a bigger decline in asset prices. I think they have a 65% decline in uh, stock prices, a 30% decline in real estate prices. Unemployment rises to 10%, and inflation falls to 1%. Now, I mean, I can't help but laugh about this severely adverse scenario where inflation is only 1%, and the Fed is, again, able to lower interest rates down to a zero. What is the Fed missing? The elephant in the room, stagflation. You know, there's an old saying that generals always prepare to fight the last war. And that's the same thing with central bankers. What was the last war? It was the 2008 financial crisis. What happened during that crisis? Right? Well, interest rates went down. Inflation went down. The dollar went up. By the way, in this adverse scenario, this severely adverse scenario, they also assume appreciation of the dollar, right? except against the yen. The yen will go up, uh, but the dollar will rise against the euro and all the other currencies just the way it did in 2008. And as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, a repeat of 2008 is the worst case scenario that it can possibly imagine. They are not even close. What happened in 2008, that's a Sunday school picnic compared to what's going to happen. Here is the scenario that they would not even consider stress testing, A, because if they did, every single bank would fail. But B, I mean, maybe they're so clueless that they don't even realize the risks that they're headed for. Because remember, before the 2008 crisis was coming, nobody thought it was possible. right? So nobody was prepared for it. Now people think 08 was possible because it just happened so now we're prepared for it but we're preparing for the battle that was already fought we're not prepared for the war that is about to begin and that is the stagflation war why doesn't the fed stress test the scenario where we have a recession but inflation is rising at the same time and so the fed can't lower interest rates to zero to stimulate the economy They have to raise interest rates to fight inflation. Or if they don't raise interest rates and inflation runs even more out of control and the bond market collapses. It's not just that there's an aversion to buying long-term bonds and the yield on the 10-year stays at 3%. What if it rises to 5%, 8%, 10%? What if the dollar doesn't rise like it did in uh, 2008? What if it tanks like it did during the 1970s, the last time we had real stagflation, right? What would happen if we had a collapsing bond market with soaring interest rates, a falling dollar, rising inflation? That, that would be the end. Every single bank that the Fed regulates would fail. And not just the, the banks, the government. The government would have to default on the national debt. I mean, everything would implode. I mean, there. this is what the Federal Reserve considers... Severely uh, adverse. I mean, that's actually a rosy scenario. We would be getting off lucky to have that severely adverse scenario. That is mild. That is benign compared to the actual scenario. And it's my scenario, right? Is not something that's like not going to happen. It is going to happen, right? If you look at the the Federal Reserve when they're you know putting these stress tests out, they go out of their way to say that they do not believe that either the severe scenario or The adverse scenario or the severely adverse scenario, they don't believe either is going to happen. They're just saying, well, if things got this bad, you know, this is what would happen. And, you know, the banks would survive. But they don't think it's going to happen. But they think the odds of stagflation are so minimal that they don't even bother to stress test for it because they don't think this stuff is going to happen. They don't think another 08 style crisis is going to happen. But they're, you know, they're preparing a stress test for it anyway, just in case. But they don't even bother to prepare a stress test for something that's actually not only more likely to happen, but something that's inevitable. And that is stagflation. That is a breakout of inflation and a breakdown in the bond market, rising interest rates, rising consumer prices as the economy declines. This is what's coming. And again, it's either because they are so completely clueless They don't even think that this is within the realm of possibility, even though it's happened in the past, right? They think it's impossible, not just unlikely, impossible. And so they're not going to do the stress test. Or they know. They know that it's coming and they know that all the banks would fail the stress test. So they can't do the test. I mean, why bother to stress test for an economic environment that you know would show that all of your banks are inadequately capitalized and they're all going to fail? Because they would under that type of environment the impact on a bank's balance sheet would be catastrophic. I mean, their collateral would be collapsing. Their loan losses would be enormous. I mean, the banks could not survive. So I guess there's no point in pointing this out because what would the Fed do? If the Fed said, oh, well, you know, all the banks are going to fail if this happens, right? You know, Murphy has a law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, right? Well, stagflation is something that can go wrong and it will go wrong. And we should be prepared for it, but we can't prepare for it, so we want to pretend that it doesn't even exist. Now, while I'm on the topic of pretending, let's talk a little bit about what happened to the cryptocurrencies this week, Bitcoin. It was a particularly uh, bad week uh, for cryptos in general. The week started off pretty bad with a report, I think, out on Monday from the Bank of International Settlement in Switzerland that laid out the case for why Bitcoin isn't going to work. I mean, there was nothing new, nothing that I haven't said uh, since the beginning when I first started criticizing uh, Bitcoin and why I didn't think it would be able to uh, fulfill its promise as, as being money. Uh, the bank pointed out many of the same uh, problems that are out there. But, you know, it was an official paper. It was a research paper from a credible institution. And so I think that immediately set a weak tone for Bitcoin on the week, although the trend clearly was already down. Now, of course, all of the, uh, you know, Bitcoin fanatics, the members of the cult, you know, the minute they see criticism from a central bank, well, of course, right? I mean, it's all biased, right? I mean, they they are the ones that are going to be put out of business. Uh, Bitcoin is disrupting the central banks. It makes the central banks obsolete. Therefore, if you're in Bitcoin and you're just hodling down, right, you can ignore All of the criticism from anybody in the banking sector, because it's all biased, it's all self-serving, they have an agenda, and why, look, I read their critique, and I always find things about it that I don't like. I mean, obviously, they try to defend the fiat monetary system and talk about how uh, it's better than uh, cryptos, and they talk about the pluses of the modern fiat monetary system, and a lot of that I disagree with, but I agree on one thing, as bad as the fiat system is that we have now. The cryptos are worse, right? They would actually be less effective as money than than what we got now, and and so the bank's criticism is completely valid. But you know, try telling that to uh, somebody who's uh, you know stuck in Bitcoin, and you know they they, they are refusing to acknowledge anything that wants to. Uh, run counter to what they want to believe. It's cognitive dissonance. The same thing happens with me. You know, when I criticize Bitcoin, it's because, oh, because I sell gold, right? Because Bitcoin is disrupting gold. Bitcoin is going to destroy the demand for gold because this is new gold. This is gold 2.0. This is better than gold. So obviously, because I'm a gold salesman, right? Because I have shipped Gold uh, as one of my various businesses. So because of that, I, you know, I can't be biased, right? Everything I say about Bitcoin, all my criticism is is biased. Well, what about all the people who own Bitcoin and want it to go higher? I mean, they're the most biased at all of everybody, right? If you own a bunch of Bitcoin and you're planning on selling it one day, you need more people to come into the market to buy. So everything you say is based on how great Bitcoin is, how high the price is going to go up because you need more people buy. And the reason. People who are in Bitcoin don't like it when people like me criticize it, is because they want that to stop. They don't want anybody criticizing Bitcoin. They need more and more people adopting. That is the Ponzi like nature of what's going on. This is all a zero sum game. Right? The money that people make in cryptocurrencies is going to equal the money that other people lose in cryptocurrencies. I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of paper wealth that is created. As the bubble inflates and then it disappears into money heaven as the bubble deflates. You know, so, I mean, at one point, uh, the market cap of all the cryptocurrencies was, I don't know, $850 billion, and now it's down to about $250 billion. You know, that $600 billion of market cap wasn't actually lost because it never really existed. It was all on paper. People didn't actually invest $600 billion into cryptos. That was just what they were worth based on the last trade. Right? I mean, all the cryptos are worth whatever the last one traded at. And so if you trade one at a high price, then they all get marked to market, right? But the actual amount of money made and lost is going to be the money in and the money out, right? How much money did people actually pay when they bought Bitcoins? And then how much money did other people get out when they sold? Those are going to be the real losses. Now, people emotionally, right, if you have a multi-million dollar fortune on paper, and then it evaporates. I mean, mentally, that's a pretty tough loss. I mean, a lot of people maybe have spent the money in their mind, or maybe they've gone out and, you know, done things that they wouldn't have done if they didn't think they had this Bitcoin fortune waiting for them. So there's probably going to be a lot of bad decisions that people would have made based on the fact that they thought they had a lot of wealth, and they're going to end up with none of that wealth. But the real losses are just the money in and the money out. Although it's not technically a zero-sum game, it is a negative sum because of all the transaction costs. I mean, there's a lot of people making money in the banking sector, on the exchanges. You know, the, the, the transaction costs are high. Uh, so if you really want to look at everything, it uh, it's going to be, some people are going to make money on Bitcoin because they got in and they got out at a profit. Other people are going to lose money uh, because they get in and get out at a loss. And then uh, the, if you net all those out, there's still going to be a loss because then there's going to be profits that were made Uh, by all the intermediaries that made all the buying and selling of Bitcoin um, profitable. But as bad as the week started out, it got even worse right at the end. Because on Friday, we got some very bad news that came out of Japan. And I I thought the original uh, reaction and maybe the Bitcoin community was very dismissive of just how bad the news actually was. And the news that came out was out of Japan, and the Japanese government basically ordered the biggest online trading platform in Japan, BitFlyer, to suspend all onboarding of new customer accounts while they are investigating the exchange for things like, you know, know your customer, anti-money laundering, all that type of stuff. Now, this is big because, first of all, Japan is the really the epicenter of crypto trading. I think something like two-thirds of the cryptocurrency trading is denominated in yen. And Japan has always held out as like the poster boy for Bitcoin adoption. Oh, it's like legal tender there. So Japan is where Bitcoin has been treated the best. And all of a sudden, you've got the regulators coming in and halting uh, new account openings at the largest exchange in, in, in Japan. Now... You know, some people could say, oh, well, you know, it's not not that big a deal. It is a big deal. Because remember, it's the new people that open up accounts that are likely to buy, right? When people are opening up an account for the first time, they're opening up to buy Bitcoin. They don't have any Bitcoin and they're opening up an account and they want to buy it. It's the people that already have accounts that already own Bitcoin. They're likely to sell, right? But what do sellers need? They need buyers. So if we are slowing down the influx of new buyers into the Japanese market, what does that mean? Especially at a time when you're already trending down. The market needs new buyers, and now it's not gonna get as many new buyers as it needs, and this is bad news. But also, again, when the regulators are cracking down on cryptocurrencies, this is not good. I know a lot of Bitcoin promoters like to think that this is great, right, because it's legitimizing uh, the cryptocurrencies. Regulation is not good, especially when part of the original appeal of cryptocurrencies was the fact that you were escaping regulation. You were app operating underneath the radar. Well, now these exchanges in Japan are going to be underneath a microscope. And what does this also mean? At the end of this, when they finally allow you know new buying, and I'm sure they will allow new buying in the future, new accounts to open, but they're probably going to require a lot more KYC on the part of these exchanges, which means the people who want to trade cryptocurrencies in Japan are going to have to give up a lot more personal information about themselves. There's going to be a lot more rigorous exam by the exchange on their customers to make sure that they're not money launderers or drug dealers or terrorists or whatever. All of this not only adds to the cost of running an exchange and all that needs to be passed on to the consumers in the form of higher prices, but it adds to the aggravation. It means it takes longer to open up an account. And it, it, it diminishes the experience. I mean, if you're giving up your privacy uh, and you're giving more information to the government, uh, then the consumer is getting less from the crypto experience and now paying more uh, to experience it. So all of this stuff is negative for Bitcoin. When the announcement came out on uh, Friday morning, Bitcoin was trading at about 66,6700 and it started to fall. And by the end of the day, we finally cracked through 6,000. I think uh, last night, uh, late afternoon, early evening, the lowest I saw on Bitstamp was 5,940. As I'm recording this now on Saturday afternoon, Bitcoin is around 6,150, but 5,900 was the lowest price this year. We finally took out the low price from February. And now we have this triple bottom around 6000 from February um, two months ago and now today or yesterday. So we have this triple bottom. And I talked about the fact on prior podcasts that we were going to make this triple bottom and then break it. I don't think that the triple bottom is going to hold. What I think is that the triple bottom is going to ultimately be the next round of resistance once we break through this floor. We haven't done that yet. That is something I expect to happen. Now, how far down this decline is going to take us, it's hard to say. Maybe it'll go to 5,000, maybe 4,500, maybe 3,000, 2,000. I don't know. But at some point, we're going to find a new level of support and we're going to rise. You know, there's going to be another rally. But my guess is that rally is going to run into a wall of resistance just above 6000 And this bear market is alive and well, and it's going a lot lower. And so far, I have seen nothing to indicate any type of capitulation on the part of the the Bitcoin bulls or any of the long-term holders that there's anything at all that needs to be worried about. I mean, look at this guy, you know, Brian Kelly, who is the counter... Uh, extraordinaire on CNBC. And remember, back in December of last year, when CNBC had nonstop coverage of Bitcoin, when it was headed to 20,000, right? I mean, they had a bug, you know, the ticker in the screen. They talked about it all the time. I did one of my podcasts and I said that they should rename uh, CNBC crypto network Bitcoin, but that's what CNBC stood for because of their nonstop coverage. Well, you know, yesterday... They really didn't even mention it at all until the end of the day, really, until they got to uh, Brian Sullivan on Fast Money. And by the way, I think that the reason I'm not on Fast Money, that is the last CNBC show to have me on. In fact, after they stopped having me on the air, they still had me on their website, you know, CNBC.com, because they knew I was good for online ratings because I have a big audience. So they had me on. But I think the reason they stopped having me on is because I'm bearish on Bitcoin. And they don't want bears on Bitcoin, on fast money. It's all about Bitcoin, right? That's the whole, that's the whole purpose, I think, of that show is to promote Bitcoin and to get people to buy it and and, and other cryptocurrencies. And the promoter in chief is is Brian Kelly. And you know, he he's on there, they call him BK. And he's like, everything is fine. This is normal, nothing to worry about. This is just your normal 70% decline or 80% decline. You know, this happens all the time. Yeah. It's happened many times, but happening now. and I've said this before, when Bitcoin fell from a dollar to ten cents, that's not the same thing as going from twenty thousand uh, to you know six, thousand or five thousand or wherever it's going to go. It's not the same thing as when Bitcoin went from ten dollars to two dollars or from hundred dollars to 20. right When it was making those big declines, People had play money involved. I mean, people were gambling with a hundred bucks, $1, a thousand bucks. They lost chump change. It was no big deal. Didn't matter, right? It was just like casino money. People didn't have their life savings in Bitcoin when they made those moves. Now, when Bitcoin went from a thousand down to two hundred, there was some, you know, larger amounts of money involved, but nothing like we got now. I mean, the amount of real money that came into this market at Bitcoin ten thousand plus. I mean, people were putting. Real money, IRA money, retirement money. People were investing $10,000, $50,000, 100000 It wasn't people throwing 100 bucks in and just seeing what happens. These are going to be real significant losses. People are losing real money. I think a lot of people are going to end up losing money that they couldn't afford to lose. I bet a lot of people borrowed money, took out home equity lines, took out cash advances on their credit cards, and invested. And also, there's a big difference in the recovery. People think it's going to be so easy to get back up to 20,000, even if we go down to 1,000 first. It's not going to be easy. Again, it's not going to be like recovering when the market went from 100 bucks to 10 bucks because the amount of new money that's going to have to come into the market to regain those highs is going to be incredible, especially when you think about the sheer size of the market now, all the cryptocurrencies that didn't exist five years ago. Right. so it's not just Bitcoin; it's all these others that are collapsing. But think about all the people who are going to want to sell on the way up, who have real money invested, and every time there's an uptick, there's going to be money that wants out. So, in order for, for the new buyers to lift the market back up to twenty thousand, they're going to have to come up with enough new money to take all those guys out—people who are going to be, you know, wiping their their, their you know the, the the sweat off their brow. Where they're getting out of jail. I mean, imagine if you bought Bitcoin at 10,000 and you wrote it down to 1,000 and then it got back up to 10,000. You got even. I mean, a lot of people are gonna sell if they get even. But the problem is, a lot of people are gonna be trying to sell when they get even at 9,000. And then a lot of people at 8,000. A lot of people at 7,000. There's gonna be so many people trying to sell to get even that there's not gonna be any way that we're gonna be able to bring the new money in to make it possible. And remember, all that money that came pouring in to Bitcoin at the top was when nobody could see it going down. It was like, hey, this is just going to keep on rising. This is a new era. This is, you know, this is the Internet all over. This is the automobile. This is the airplane. This is going to revolutionize the world. And people were afraid of missing out. Look at how much it's going up. Believe me, when Bitcoin goes back down to a thousand, no one's going to be afraid of missing out anymore. All that's going to be gone. What people are going to be afraid of is losing what they've got left. That hasn't even happened yet because nobody is worried. Everybody thinks that this decline is just like all the other declines. And so there is maximum complacency. And that is exactly how bear markets work. In fact, this is not just a bear market that the cryptos are in. This is a bubble deflating. And this is exactly how bubbles deflate. First, it's slow. The air comes out and nobody realizes it. The Bitcoin enthusiasts are like the frog in a a pot of boiling water. They're being boiled to death slowly and they have no idea what's happening. But at some point, the capitulation is going to uh, happen and the market is gonna implode. Where is that gonna be? I think it's gonna be below 1,000. Personally, I think that we get this big drop, then we get a rally, then we get another decline, then maybe another rally. But I think when we get back below 1,000 and really start to fall, that's when it could implode. That's when you could see the market down 70, 80% in one day, where Bitcoin goes from 1,000 to 100, 200, 100 in a single day. And that's when everybody you know, pukes it all out, and, uh, and that's the end of it. Meanwhile, you know, people again want to believe that, well, you know, all this money was invested in the space in the last year, and that validates uh, a Bitcoin and crypto because you have all this venture capital money that got invested into all these businesses, all of that was malinvestment. None of these investments should have been made. It was all a byproduct of the bubble and the get-rich-quick attitude that surrounded it. So all of these malinvestments are going to be liquidated. Whether blockchain itself has some applications that may be useful to other industries in the future, sure, that could happen. That still remains to be seen, how important blockchain is going to be. But the one thing that I am certain of is that regardless of how blockchain is integrated into the financial system, Bitcoin or or these other cryptocurrencies are not going to be a part of it. And no matter how successful blockchain may be, Bitcoin and all these other currencies are going to fail. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to go down with this ship. And I am not saying that because I'm biased. I'm not saying that because I'm in the gold business. I'm saying that because that's what I believe and that's what I am certain is going to happen. And as I mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, I'm very critical of, you know, the, the what's happening in the country. I'm critical of the policies of the Fed, I'm critical of the things that Donald Trump is doing. I'm critical of these things as an American, as somebody who lives in this country, who was born in this country, who is raising children in this country, albeit from Puerto Rico at this point, but I love the country, I want it to succeed, but I know it's going to fail first. The only chance it has of succeeding is to go through this failure, to do a reboot, to go back to the constitution, to go back to sound money, which is not cryptocurrencies, but real money, to go back to limited government. And while I believe that the policies that are being pursued are bad for me as an American, I believe they are fantastic for me as an investor. There is no doubt in my mind that I am going to make a tremendous amount of money personally as a result of the mistakes that are being made. I wouldn't make those mistakes if I had control over them. I would do things differently, but I don't. All I can do is prepare for what I know is going to happen. And I'm trying to encourage as many other people to prepare for it too. And that includes being out of the dollar, being uh, out of U.S. stocks and bonds, being in the safe haven markets, being in... Uh, gold and silver, and it means being out of cryptocurrencies.